Traditionally, scholars conceive of images of rigorous intellectual life happening within halls of independent study or graduate seminars. But over the last few years, an increasing number of professors have used the undergraduate classroom as a site for critical theorizing in religious studies. What is interesting to me about this work is that teachers are not simply assigning canons of prodigious thinkers, but they're exploring the shared life world that students, teachers, staff, and administrators are creating in that strange setting we call the college. Dr. Meredith Minister of Shenandoah University's Department of Religion has given a lot of thought to this and joined us for a conversation on teaching theory today. Her own journey as a teacher scholar gave us a lot to think about. I think a lot of times as theorists, we sort of like throw in a theory and then we're out and we're not actually engaged with what is happening on the ground as a result of our theory. And that's coming up right now. From SowingTheSeed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, the podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. We're here talking with Dr. Meredith Minister. She is Assistant Professor of Religion at Shenandoah University. Thank you, Meredith, for joining us on the show. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm really excited to be spending some time with you this week teaching at the Shenandoah University Youth Theology Institute, our first ever, so thank you for joining us. Thank you, and it's, <laughs> it's been neat because um, Meredith and I first met while we were both students. Meredith was a doctoral student at the Graduate Program of Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University, and I was a Master of Divinity student at Perkins School of Theology on the same campus, and we crossed paths there and now we are both professors and teachers of undergraduates and we're here together teaching together with this at this program the Shenandoah Youth Theological Institute and it's been neat for me to see Meredith to see you in this role of not just a teacher but someone who actually cares about teaching which is kind of few and far between in our field at times um, teaching is something we get tacked on we tack on um, in our careers but for you it seems like a space where you actually thrive um, in addition to your research area. Uh, I believe when we were at Southern Methodist University, you were working on an embodied theology related to the Trinity um, and thinking about the persons of God and how they relate. Is that right? That is correct. That is what I wrote my dissertation on. So so what's that <laughs> doing now for you? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, my intellectual development has been... Uh, I don't know if it's an interesting if it is an interesting trajectory or not, but it's interesting to me um, that I sort of first got interested in these questions, uh, thinking theologically, and that what I'm doing now is much more um, cultural studies, sociological studies, that I'm thinking about religion from a very different perspective than I was thinking about it whenever I got interested in this field, and then I was thinking about it even when I wrote my dissertation. Um, so there are some differences in my intellectual trajectory, but I think the, the similarity is that whenever I was working on my dissertation, I was interested in how Trinitarian theology, which is something that we tend to think of as very abstract, um, perhaps even disembodied, um, 
So yeah. how God can be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and exactly. yet one God. Exactly, yes, yes. So this is sort of a perennial problem within Christian theology and sort of other monotheists are like, wait, are the Christians really monotheists? Because they sort of have three gods over there, and we sort of do. Um, because whenever we talk about Trinitarian theology, it's a, it's a complicated monotheism. So I was interested in how this uh, fairly abstract concept gets embodied or uh, becomes concrete in our social relations. So I first became interested in this question thinking about uh, gendered relationships and how Trinitarian theology is often justified uh, or, or is often used to justify um, unequal gender relationships. Um, and then I also saw how Trinitarian theology is used to justify other ways of marginalizing people who are already marginalized within communities. So we think about not just gender inequality, but also racial inequality and sexual inequality, um, because we're often talking about uh, male and female relations. So there's an assumption there. So how does that play out? I mean, I am familiar for sure with the always radical notion that we could call God mother in Christianity and even within the Trinity, um, and yet that's very disturbing to other people. And of course, we're no strangers to theological inappropriateness um, here on this podcast, but that seems to be always an issue when you talk to students about this sort of constellation in Christian thought, that yes, God is often called Father, um, but there are clearly moments in that history in which God is and even Jesus are understood as a, ma a maternal figure. Yeah. Um, so we see some, you know, so you mentioned that not only do sex and gender come into play when thinking about the Trinity at work, but also race has been a part of that yeah. Christian conversation. Can you give us some examples of where you've seen social difference take shape around Trinity language? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, just right, a really concrete example um, when thinking about race is the imaging of Jesus as a white person, even though we don't think about, um, historically speaking, um, Jesus was not white. Uh, and yet he's often um, framed as a white person. And so then whenever we start to image the other Trinitarian figures, they're also framed as white. Um, and then uh, because the Holy Spirit sort of takes on this um, amorphous role within the Trinity and the Holy Spirit can be figured in different ways, then uh, we, whenever we start to think, oh, well, we've always sort of talked about the Father and the Son or thought about the Father and the Son as white, so we'll just think about the Holy Spirit then as this sort of like um, incorporation of color difference. Whenever we start to think about the Holy Spirit in that way, and the Holy Spirit also has been incorporated into the Trinity um, in a gendered way, so okay, we've got this masculine father and son thing going on, we'll just think about the Holy Spirit as feminine. Whenever we do that, we're not really thinking about the history of Trinitarian thought and how the Holy Spirit has, uh, even though we talk about the three equal beings, actually is uh, sort of marginalized within this father-son relationship in a lot of ways. And so whenever that becomes a representative figure of difference within the Trinity, we're actually reconstructing these uh, social marginalizations. So is it fair to call the Holy Spirit the kind of boilerplate <laughs> CYA um, token friend that you bring into the conversation to say, no, you've got a place here at the yeah. table too, or you've got a place within um, 
the panorama that is the image of God or whatever. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I think that's probably fair. A lot of Trinitarian theologians would disagree with me, but I, I do think that the ways that we construct and talk about the Holy Spirit are, um, yeah, that that's a fair analogy. So you've observed this and how Christians have worked this out in an effort to describe and even explain God and God at work. You've now sort of shifted toward what does that language do within the work of communities themselves or the social and cultural ramifications. Exactly. Um, And this comes from the Christian history of thinking about human beings in the image of God. And that whenever we're talking about human beings in the image of a Trinitarian God, we're not just thinking about individual human beings as being made in the image of God, but as communities being made in some kind of an image of the Trinity. And it's such a tempting um, place to play with students of kind of Christian narrative, of Christian myth, um, because you have that prescription of God as one, and yet that's not sufficient for so many Christians in the sense that they've got to see some plurality, they've got to see some difference reflected in that. And so any instance in artwork or within the text itself, right? I'm working with students throughout the Genesis narrative and how many times God has spoken up in the plural, um, even in English translations. They want to know what's going on there. Is it the Trinity? Is it the angels? Is it God's court? What is this? What is it the royal we? Like they want to know because that doesn't sit with them well. And you've pointed out very clearly, like there are other reasons why this shouldn't sit with us well either. Um, I think a lot of times... Uh, the Trinity is used, and we we were discussing this a few minutes before we started, but the Trinity is used to same difference. So rather than thinking about um, God as a as a place and sort of Christian the complicated monotheism that we have as a place that sort of um, honors difference and um, recognizes what difference sort of brings to a community that Trinitarian theology is often used because it's still a monotheistic construction to same social difference. So instead of, yeah, recognizing the plurality of differences, it's sort of like this melting pot where we all become the same thing, which is, I think, not the best use of Trinitarian theology. Yeah, and I think there's certainly a... a there are certainly sections within Christian thinking about the question of religion or the the notion category of religion where those issues of difference, social difference, um, are of great concern. Um, I'm thinking liberation theology. I'm thinking also of nation building for that manner, that for that matter. Yes, they care about difference and how you regulate difference, but in your, the religious studies context, it sounds like you think about difference and lead students to think about difference in um, somewhat of a different manner. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've abandoned Trinitarian theology in, in, in some respects. What were you saying a minute ago? You're not a stranger to theological inappropriateness on this podcast. That's right. That's a, that's a good thing because I am more or less no longer interested in what Trinitarian theology is doing or not doing. I'm just interested in the social context. Yeah, so what so how did you, maybe one way of getting at, at this question is asking you, how did that happen? Like, how did that disinterest happen? But maybe more importantly, I'm, I'm concerned with or interested in hearing how 
you see those differences playing out as a result yeah. of whatever trajectory you took? So I think um, the, the disinterest happened in part because I was seeing that Trinitarian theology was, that, that there were more things that I was finding problematic about the uses of Trinitarian theology than I was finding interesting. Um, and so I sort of abandoned that. I think the other thing that happened is that I graduated and I started teaching undergraduate students. And I realized that undergraduate students um, within liberal arts contexts, uh, that we really need an approach to religious studies in those contexts and not necessarily theological thinking. Although I do think that it is valuable to teach theological thinking a lot of times the ways that it's taught in seminaries is not the way that it needs to be taught in undergraduate contexts. I was also teaching an undergraduate context where there was no religious studies program if I wasn't the religious studies program. Um, and so I started thinking more about religious difference and theories and methods in the study of religion and sociological and cultural contexts. And that's how I, yeah, and I, I just got much more interested in those questions than in questions that uh, were being raised in theology or in Trinitarian theology. I, there's this sort of classic debate, which you are well aware of within the study of religion, right? Are we doing theology? Are we doing religious studies? And um, I'm working on an article right now with a dear colleague of mine, Sarah Blush. Shout out to Sarah Blush. Um, she's a fantastic colleague. We're doing working on several projects right now, but one of the things that we're working on is this um, thinking about this difference between theology and religious studies and how it works oftentimes to position religious studies as this neutral study of religion, whereas theology is the department in which normative claims are made, whereas religious studies is often making normative claims as well. We're just not recognizing what normative claims are being made in religious studies. So it's treated as a neutral discourse, even though that's not a fair distinction. So sort of still interested in the relationship between those things, but I have sort of transitioned from thinking about theological questions to thinking about questions that are usually framed in terms of religious studies. And within that framework, the religious studies framework, what are you seeing that you didn't see before? Um, maybe not because of the fault of theological constraint, but just because you're in a new or different vantage point. What are you seeing about those social relationships, maybe as they pertain to yeah. social difference, um, race and sexuality particularly, um, that you just didn't see before or that are yeah. of interest? That's a great question. I think it's opened me up to thinking not just with and about Christian traditions, but in thinking about how these differences are playing out in other religious traditions and in the relationships between religious traditions. So thinking about religious conflict and the difference that religion makes in navigating our social situations. And you know, as we know, there are uh, huge implications for how we think about religion. Um, in our political and social situations. Yeah. So as a teacher yeah. of religious studies, you know, guiding students in an inquiry about religion and its imbrication, its, its layeredness in social difference, issues of social difference, yeah. what are you seeing, in, seeing as a benefit of engaging with students that you yeah. weren't 
in, in this manner Good. that you weren't seeing before. Yeah. Um, a lot of times students are really interested in studying other religious traditions. And so I sort of, I, that, I, I, I love that interest and I'm really excited about that interest, but I'm also interested in interrogating that interest because I think a lot of times students are interested in studying other religious traditions because we're assuming that um, religious traditions are sort of um, a cafeteria. We've been eating in a cafeteria this week and we have a lot of options at the cafeteria that we've been eating in. So, right, so we can sort of pick and choose these different um, beliefs. I think that that's what gets students interested in thinking about different religious traditions a lot of the time. I'm interested in interrogating why that is their interest and approach to religious traditions. So bringing them into the implications of um, colonialism and how that impacts how we think about religion or um, appropriation and thinking about how we are um, oftentimes um, a lot, of, I teach in a predominantly white institution, so a lot of times um, students are thinking about, you know, sort of what's going to benefit them from different religious traditions. I also like to, because this is their approach to religious traditions, they're often thinking about religion as something that is very personal or individual. And so one of the other ways that I like to complicate this an initial interest that they bring to the study of religion is by thinking about how religion is public, whether we like it or not. Like, we don't always like how religion is public. It brings, it produces a lot of conflict. Um, it's produced a lot of conflict in uh, recent months, um, uh, given our current political situation. But, uh, and so sometimes it's just easy to say, let's just pull religion out of the mix. And, and it's just this individual thing. We don't have to deal with it publicly. But whether we like it or not, religion is a feature of our public life together and we need to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, and it's fascinating that you, you know, you, I guess, consciously made this shift from um, a commitment to sort of theological inquiry to one of religious studies engagement in the classroom um, because of a concern for normative claims. And yet when you look back at kind of the classical traditions in religious studies, you know, you have to read these books about definitions of religion and the various approaches and lenses you might use. So many of them were concerned about um, a type of normative claim, like what is the um, best way to register this thing called religion? Yeah. And when you speak in the classroom, you know, and, and one of this, one of these has to do with like questions about comparison and how comparison works, right? right? right. Um, well, if you say religion exists here and here and here, what is it that we're talking about when we call religion? And then you tend to get into spaces of we're saying this is what it is, or at least this is what you should be observing. Yeah. Um, so normativity doesn't go out the window here. No. Uh, there's a different normativity that comes about in the classroom, it sounds like, with this kind of world cafe yeah. approach to religion, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. question of both comparative religions and I think interfaith dialogue, yeah. which is a big piece at both of our current institutions. Um, students want to almost choose which normative claim is compatible with their viewpoints. Yeah. And your commitment to, again, relationships between language about God or the postulated supernatural or the transcendent <laughs> uh, also has serious ramifications for how people relate to each other. Or you're making that connection between what we say about God 
says something about what we say about each other. That's um, right. That's right. Yeah. You're so you're making the connection. You're right. I think of like this transition and you're like you're still asking the same question and I am. I'm still asking very similar questions. I'm like thinking um, to myself, did I just become the Oprah, Oprah of religious studies? Like, <laughs> oh no. Which is actually I take that. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um that makes me think of Katie Lofton's, you know, excellent work on uh, Oprah and the Gospel of what is it? The Gospel of O. Yeah. 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 Um. Uh. So. Um. Oh, but I was gonna think about methods and theories in the study of religion, and often the methods and theories in the study of religion that we start with. Uh, that we talk about in our methods and theories classes. I'm thinking about this really classic text, um, Daniel Pauls' eight, and it's now nine theories of religion. I was really excited whenever it moved from eight to nine because I was hoping that we were going to get the addition of somebody who's not a white dude. And the addition that was made when it became nine theories was William James. And I was just sort of like, oh, like really another another white dude to theorize religion for us. And I think that this is a real problem whenever we talk about theories and methods in the study of religion, um, because they're so often framed by this intellectual tradition. And we don't think about the more recent work that's being done in religious studies that's redefining religion thinking very specifically through differences that aren't just religious differences, but that are racial, that are gender, um, differences of sexual uh, and um, ability. Uh, and we really need to be thinking with these folks who are rethinking religion on the basis of those differences. So another project that Sarah Blush and I are working on that I will just plug here, if that's okay with you, is a new um, uh, theories and methods textbook, more or less. And so uh, the theorists that we are highlighting in this textbook, instead of thinking with Freud and with uh, James and the theorists um, in Powell's book, we are thinking with theorists, uh, it starts with Mary Douglas and it ends with Saba Mahmood. And on the way, we're not just thinking of with people who have explicitly been in the field of religious studies, but with people who have been taken up in the field of religious studies. So Alice Walker is a hugely significant significant figure in theology and religious studies. So we're, uh, there's a chapter on her in the book, as well as um, Judith Butler is another example of someone who is not necessarily in the field of religious studies. She's a philosopher, but she has been hugely impactful in the field. So we're really excited about this book and hope, hope that it's going to change the conversation around theories and methods in religious studies a little. Yeah. Yeah, I... Less Freud. You know, I, I look at that Daniel no Powell's book. Right, yeah, I mean, there's... He's important. I think there's a way to look at the development of our intellectual history, especially, specifically in a discipline as young as religious studies. Yeah. And we look back at the past, and it's like a it's like a middle school yearbook where you're like, ooh, those times were bleak. <laughs> Yet, those times were those extremely formative, right? And yeah. those times are now. The past yeah. isn't really past. Yeah. And um, so with that Daniel Powell's book, I mean, it's so... I think it's so instructive, so useful because it gives us a way to say here is one scholar's study, right? To to go off of Jonathan Z. Smith, this is one scholar's study yeah. of this thing called religion. Not only what do you learn about this thing he's calling religion, um, in this case Paul's, but what does that say about everyone else in the world um, that he could potentially study, 
yeah. and that he has chosen either to study or not study. Um, what are the implications of that? And it seems to me that that is actually the study of religion, thinking about our layered and frankly tortured history with religion as a indicator of difference and value and meaning and purpose and um, knowledge. Uh, so yeah, the past isn't really past and we will have many, many, many more books on how the study of religion should be approached. Your study of religion, it sounds like, is, is a, um, a conversation partner with Paul's, so to speak. And I'm wondering, what do you hope or think? Yeah. yeah, or a response to. Yeah. Um, what do you hope or think the field gets from your alternative reading? Yeah. What it is that we're doing? The first and foremost, I hope that we have a new textbook to use in theories and methods classes so that we don't have to rely on, and I, I said this a minute ago, but a bunch of white dudes to theorize religion for us, that we have theories of religion that are coming um, from a lot of diverse perspectives now. And I hope that that becomes a regular part of the religious studies classroom and particularly of theories and methods, uh, understandings in the religious studies classroom. Real talk though, why does that yeah. matter? Wait, why do theories and methods of the of religious studies matter? Wait, why does what The matter? representation of who's doing the theorizing and practicing certain methods and, and how they should, or maybe even saying how those methods should be applied matter. I mean, yeah. I, I hear this a lot, not no, just from you, good. but just like sort of the Oh my gosh! Look at this, SB, you know, Society of Biblical Literature. Let's look, look. Let's look at this SBL panel. It's all men. That's a They're whole all different white. Field. Um, there's some great. It's not a different. Great field, work yeah. done, you know, in SBL particularly about uh, representation. You know, whose whose books are being reviewed? You know, who are these people? What does that representation say about the constitution of this one field? Um, and I, I think that's important work, and I, I have some sense, I guess maybe for me, why I think that's important, but why, that's a commonplace now that I'm seeing coming up more and more, and I'm wondering, for your study, why is it important that it's not just people who look like this? Yeah, not just people who look like Freud. I think it's not just a common sort of like thing that we're talking about um, in our academic field, but also in, in our institutions, right? We think a lot about diversity and incorporating diversity, and oh, obviously we have to incorporate diversity, but so often we're not thinking about why um, or how we're doing it. And so then, because we're not thinking about how or why we're doing it, we're doing it in a lot of ways that are really problematic and not thoughtful. I think that we have to reconsider the whole field of religious studies based on perspectives that aren't from white dudes because of the way that the whole history of the discipline is built on colonialism and colonial assumptions. So if we just think about adding sort of, oh, we're just going to talk about religious studies from the perspective of women, or we're just going to think about religious studies from the perspective of African Americans, or we're going to think about religious studies from the perspective of um, the LGBT community. Uh, that whenever we just sort of think that we're just going to add these perspectives into religious studies that we fail to interrogate the underpinnings of our whole field. And I think that we really need to interrogate those underpinnings if we're going to develop methods that are useful for thinking about religion in our increasingly compli 
complex world. Yeah, I mean, what occurs to me about that read of the history of the field is that colonialism isn't just this incidental, I mean, beyond colonialism, I guess the whole structuring of um, nationalist projects, colonial projects, um, and the intellectual inquiries they require, it's not just incidental that all the people look the same or have similarities or aspire to a certain similarity and want to be read in a certain way. That's part of the project in itself. So maybe the most critical thing we can do is to say, where have we not been studying deliberately and what might we have to learn from that, even if it undermines um, what we've built, (laughs) what we've constructed. So, an example so it's like that dismantling, here, deconstruction, exactly. you know, that kind of work. Uh-huh. An example here is sort of the reification of the religious-secular divide, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, the, like, it's just assumed that either something is religious or it's secular. Um, and oftentimes the U.S. is sort of held up as sort of a, a, a pinnacle of the separation of church and state, right? So we are politically secular. Um, and I think the work that uh, scholars like Saba Mahmood is, are doing um, is hugely important, and of course, Mahmud is in a tradition um, starting with Assad and formula- formulations of uh, secularity. But I think that um, the work that these types of scholars are doing is interrogating the underpinnings of religious studies and saying that this divide between secular and religious is it, it doesn't really work because secularism is just as normative as religious or as theological claims, right? Um, yeah, so it's not just something that you can sort of like incorporate into religious studies. We're challenging the very foundations of where the discipline has come from. So then, it can get a little chaotic. Absolutely, it like my get, classroom. It can get chaotic, <laughs> and it can um, kind of become a headache. Yeah. For the academies yeah. in yeah. which we work, I mean the the actual institutions. I mean, how do you get a a Office of Communications to market that. Yeah. How do you get, uh, how do you even now form now the Department of Religious Studies, right? We've so often been recognized as, uh, um, you know, we have these sort of, a lot of us Christian religious histories, a lot of religious studies departments are still in uh, institutions that are um, funded by churches. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a little complicated. Oh, how do you market this thing? And how do you form the discipline and get grants to develop the study of religion? How do you cooperate with other departments? What are you bringing to this academic study? Yeah, it's a... These are good questions. <laughs> yeah, Mike Altman, who's at University of oh, Alabama, Lord. I was on a panel with him, and he started out his paper with, it's hard out there for a theorist. Um, or something like that, and I think he's exactly right. I mean, the the thing that we are trying to do with the study of religion, um, the the careful examination of kind of how we even got to talking about this thing called religion in the first place, and why are we still talking about it? Yeah. Um, that's a in ways that we don't even know we're we're doing. Um, that's not a popular enterprise precisely because it reveals behaviors, assumptions, and relationships that we can't 
speak about in obvious ways. Yeah. They're like the comedian's jokes that yeah. they hit us and maybe that's the worst language to use, but it is, I think it's that violent, right? It, it hits is. us mm-hmm. and says, wow, okay, this has an impact and I don't know what I feel about it, even yeah. though I just laughed at it. Yeah. I mean, that sort of relationship. Yeah. Uh, and and particularly, you talk about comedy and um, I've just been talking about comedy and offense in, in one of my classes. And so it the best comedy plays a similar role, I think, to really good theory. But I think both can go uh, astray in ways that are really um, harmful. Um, both comedy and theory. This is an interesting analogy. I've got to think more about this. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, well, I've heard about it from a number of people. I've seen it practiced well. I think uh, Mike Altman's a good example. I think yeah. the crew at Culture on the Edge does it well. Um, I have a colleague, Jason Hebert, who I studied with at Claremont, who really brought this point in a seminar about, you know, that the theorist should be like the the cultural critic comedian, yeah. you know. Um, but we also see the one the lives of those people. You know, they've seen a lot of stuff that allows them to be observers of the yeah. world um, and of those spots that we don't want to talk about. They seem to thrive there. What does that mean for the kind of conversations yeah. that we are framing in the classroom and the things we're trying to get people to see and why? I mean, yeah, it's... well, and, and, and sometimes comedians can sort of, you know, throw a, a dig into the middle of things and, um, you know, things sort of blow up and the comedians are out. So I'm thinking very specifically about this um, Chalking Muhammad case study that I was just working on with the students this morning. And um, in this case study, there's a South Park episode um, in which Muhammad um, is, uh, is portrayed as a bear. Um, and then South Park, you know, there's a lot of backlash and so they portray him again. Uh, and, and then this very specific thing happens on Northwestern's campus where um, they chalk Muhammad, even though the Muslim Student Association has said no, um, the sort of secular humanist atheist association goes ahead and does it. And so I, um, I, I'm thinking about now with this analogy of the theorists, like the South Park creators are like totally out of this situation and the way that it is concretely playing out on Northwestern's campus and the offense that's happening there on Northwestern's campus, I think a lot of times as theorists, we sort of like throw in a theory and then we're out and we're not actually engaged with what is happening on the ground as a result of our theory. The same thing is happening with Trinitarian theologians, right? You just sort of throw this idea out there and, and you're not actually engaged with who it's harming and how it's playing out on the ground. And I don't know. Yeah. But we forget that we're on the ground too, exactly. right? I mean, I think that, that exactly. distinction of the, the lived religion and the, the student of the embodied religion, yeah. right? Uh, I know that the material culture, I think you know, these are all very popular fields at this moment. Um, and in some ways for very good reasons, like we need to understand the material and what people are doing. Um, but one of the critiques that comes from that sector that kind of bothers me is this sense that the theorist is disengaged, disembodied from the world they're critiquing when, just like the comedian, they can only make these observations because they're deep in it. Yeah. But. But they have the social power to extract themselves 
from the situation when things get real. Like, in the South Park episode, like, or the South Park creators have nothing to do with what's going on at Northwestern, right? So they're on the ground. They're on the ground in a way that they don't actually have to deal with the repercussions of what they've just done. Yeah. So I do think, I, I don't buy this distinction between, uh, you know, lived religion and theory. I think that they're often working together. But I do think that we need to think about who the theorists are and how they are engaging with how their theories are playing out. Yeah. So, so one space I see this being worked out in, in a space where, I guess actually you could say there is a lot of money if you frame your work the right way, is trigger warnings right, right? and censorship okay. and um, intellectual freedom in the classroom and what is that relationship like with... Um, sort of student institution of which yeah. it's the professor, the teacher is a representative in some way. Um, how does that, how, how do you see that sort of a, like is that a, a practice that should be a friend to the theorist, yeah. to the critic, or is it a, um, is it a front? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of times whenever we're talking about trigger warnings and the sort of like debate about trigger warnings that sort of goes on on the Chronicle and inside higher ed and we're familiar with academics you know sort of battling it out over this and what we should be doing in our classroom I think a lot of those debates um, some of them recognize this but a lot of them tend to be disremoved from uh, the context out of which trigger warnings developed and this um, and the role of PTSD and the rise of PTSD in trigger warnings. I think uh, um, we have students in our classrooms who are, um, I have war veterans in my classrooms. Um, I have students who are not just uh, victim survivors of sexual assault, but who are victim survivors of sexual assault recently, like that happened, right? Like within the last couple of weeks, like this is happening in, in real time. If, if, if this, you know, um, we pay attention to the statistics, we're talking about um, one in four, some statistics say five women uh, are assaulted during college, which means in, that in a classroom of 20, right? So if you think about what that actually play, like plays out, even if we have an even gender divide, say for example, in that classroom, we still have a, a recent victim of um, and victim survivor. That language is complicated. Absolutely. I have a lot of thoughts about survivorship language. I've recently been diagnosed with stage four cancer, and there's a lot of language around survivorship that I apparently I'm a survivor um, already just by living past day one of the diagnosis. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about survivorship language, but however we frame um, this person who has been sexually assaulted, whether it's in terms of victim or survivorship, um, we, we, we have people who um, are um, sitting in our classes, and we need to figure out what that means whenever we're just going to pop in a reference here or there to, uh, to, to things that are in our students' lives and how that is going to affect them. Yeah. That this question of trigger warnings can't be removed from the mental illness context and that we cannot exclude some, there have been some arguments that, you know, these students need counseling, not trigger warnings. We can't exclude students who need counseling from our classroom 
sure, counseling, great. Um, and we need to deal with PTSD and in, in medical situations. Uh, but to say then that we don't need to be dealing with it in our classrooms, I think is, is not fair. So we need to think about how we are going to be raising these issues in our classrooms. Well, because they're already happening. <laughs> exactly. Right? And I'm hearing you speak about the experiences in your classroom and how you, why they're occurring. It, I mean, it just really does stand out to me more clearly that the dynamics we're speaking about are not limited to the page in our syllabus and that class time starts at 8 o'clock and we'll conclude at 9.15 that always present are the um, ways in which those students have been identified and read and how we are reading each other and identifying each other within the shared moment and the implications for that reading when they leave. Yeah. And this is what the theorist does, right? They showcase how that thing that we see is so bleak um, is happening in quite subtle ways too, and we should be on the lookout for it. Um, maybe the, the trigger warning doesn't have to be the, um, the obstacle to the theorist. It can be the EG, you know, the, yeah. that, that free example there um, to open up conversations about the legacy and trajectory of propriety, which yeah. is really what religion's about, right? right? Regulating propriety. You were engaging this with your discussion of the Trinity. We're engaging it with what people say about God and how it relates with humans. It's about what is proper yeah. um, and who gets to say. Yeah. Um, at least that's part of what it's about, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's the... Uh, yeah. So what's the uh, class that you want to teach look like? Oh my gosh. Well, and that's changed even in you know, the last few months. I'm, I'm doing this work on, um, I'm finishing a book right now on um, rape, religion, in the classroom and sort of these intersections. There is actually a chapter um, about trigger warnings. Um, so I should be more astute on that than I've just been. But um, uh, the, a lot of this work is thinking about um, the really superficial responses that we're getting to sexual violence on college campuses in terms of consent and bystander intervention, how we need to do a lot more work in thinking about what it means to respond to sexual violence on college campuses. I'm making the argument that we need long-term classroom-based solutions rather than these sort of like quick interventions that happen in first-year orientation. Um, but in order to make these long-term classroom-based uh, interventions, we actually have to think about what sexual violence is and where rape culture is coming from. Um, and I think religion helps us do that in part because of the connection between rape culture and purity culture. So that's a lot of what, uh, where the framing work in the first couple of chapters is coming from. Then that's also connected to practices of policing and how we police uh, domestic violence, which is related to um, you know, our policing in prisons. There are a lot of pieces going into this. I'm, I'm coming around to the class that I wanna teach because ever since my diagnosis, I've been making connections between um, trauma and the trauma of sexual violence and um, sort of trauma around medical diagnosis. I don't really know 
what I'm doing with these connections yet, uh, but there's a lot of similarities in language and how these things are talked about, um, and yet there are important differences. So, I don't know, my dream class might be trying to figure this out. I suppose I should figure it out before I wanna teach the dream class, but, um, but thinking about trauma, survivorship, um, and what it means in different contexts, uh, I think might be along the lines of a dream class at the moment. I don't know. And maybe this the dream might not class, be. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say maybe the dream class doesn't need the answer to the question, yeah. but rather it's the oh, well desire done. to ask that question with a group of students. I mean, how? Uh, full disclosure. I mean, maybe I'm letting out the secrets, but I work out my research in the classroom. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just because that's how my, I think my current job is structured, but it's also ideal. I like doing yeah. that, you know, to be able to think aloud and to listen yeah. to what these people with their various experiences are bringing to the table. Um, and so it sounds like the question you have is just really rich to um, discuss with a group of students who clearly um, have some connection to those stories. We know that, like the statistics yeah. you mentioned, that what's being talked about in the news is sort of public conversation around these issues, sexual violence, religion, trauma, um, or I should say sexual violence and trauma. And religion, of course, is a framework through which we learn to think about it and we learn not to think about exactly. it or discuss it. Exactly, uh, yeah. The, the, Shiloh... the, the way that it's being talked about, religion is absent from the conversation. Yeah. So part of what uh, I'm arguing in, uh, in the manuscript is that in order to actually understand this conversation, we are missing some really crucial components. Yeah, the, the Shiloh Project, which oh, has right. been conducted mm -hmm. at uh, Sheffield's Interdisciplinary Institute for Biblical Studies. SIIBS is a really fascinating project that is answering the very notion of what is rape culture. One yep. of those kind of first questions that I think is very crucial right now. Um, because there are many who will say, well, what does it mean to talk about this thing called rape culture? And I think it's a fair question. But um, usually that question is followed by uh, a full stop and not an actual question mark. Yeah. Right. And what this blog has, even in its early postings, has shown is that this conversation about sexual violence, rape, and trauma um, follows some frameworks that we see instituted through art and um, text and literature um, and other sort of forms of media that have a very biblical history, right? Yeah. The, the history of the Bible is the history of these issues, yeah. and it's one that we continue to live out yeah. uh, as our past is not past. Um, so I, I've been very interested to follow them, and it seems like yeah. that's an example of some people who are teaching a class they want to teach. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just also mention, yeah. in relation to the Shiloh Project, a couple of other biblical studies scholars who are doing really fantastic work on this stuff. Um, who I've had the opportunity of collaborating with are Rhiannon Grayville at um, Rhodes College in Memphis and Beatrice Lawrence at Seattle University. And they are asking these questions in really um, interesting ways about how we continue to play out biblical narratives and what that means for how we think about rape and sexual violence in our contemporary context. Yeah. And while we're on shout outs, just I have to, to give shout a, out, yeah, just to, just to uh, shout out my colleagues. Um, Leslie DeRose Smith, she works mm -hmm. with Culture on the yeah. Ed. Culture on the Ed. Um, she does a lot of fascinating work in the rhetoric around how bodies 
are read um, and the way gender plays a part in that. Her stuff on Culture on the Edge is brilliant. Um, I have to keep changing my favorite reads list because she writes a new post and then I must add it. Right. Uh, so right. um, these are all resources that we'll put on our bibli- the bibliography section underneath the podcast. Meredith Minister, it's been real. Yeah, it's, it's been fun. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. you end a conversation that is, is so grim, um, but I... Well, well, we need a joke. I, I mean, really, like, this is one of the things that I've been saying, you know, since the diagnosis, not to bring a background in humor, but we need good humor. Like, I don't know, it's a cliche, but either you laugh or you cry. So, I don't have a good joke. I mean, you know, I have jokes about my diagnosis, but I need a joke that, like, you know, is, like, real to the conversation. I'll say this. You laugh or you cry. Um, I often think about that after a religious studies class. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, okay, that works. I don't works. know if I would have gotten through grad school without that sort of mantra. All right. Um, so, uh... <laughs> I did cry after some of my grad school courses. Thanks. Wow, maybe my yeah, education has yeah. been a joke to this point. Um, who knows? But, Meredith Minister, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and come back anytime. Yeah, thanks. Dr. Meredith Minister is Assistant Professor of Religion at Shenandoah University. She's the co-editor of Cultural Approaches to Studying Religion, Introduction to Theories and Methods, and the Bloomsbury Reader in Cultural Approaches to the Study of Religion. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Ponsuwan, thanks for being here. Until next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the blog SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Our theme music comes from Second Serve, a Creative Commons track by Ergo Fizmiz. Thanks for listening.